There are two things that I hope you will be wrestling with as we head out of here in a few minutes, and that is this, um, that you will be wrestling in a fresh new way with the sovereignty of God and its pervasive influence in our world and in our lives, and that you'll be wrestling again with a thoughtful faithfulness to God in your everyday life. Those really are the two themes that I want to concentrate on from the scriptures this morning. There could be other themes, and there are other themes, but those are the two things I want you to think about. The sovereignty of God, the pervasiveness of his reign, and of the faithfulness of his servants. If you haven't already, at some point in your life, you will face significant change. Sometimes that significant change comes in the way that your health declines and you have a challenge that you've never faced before. It might be a relationship that ends. It might be a job that you thought you would have forever that is now done. You might relocate. You might start school. Any number of things could be um, classed under this thing of significant change. And if you've gone through any change, you know that sometimes change can be overwhelming because you really don't know what is stable any longer. You really don't know what is steadfast. Everything seems to be moving. And if you were to ask yourself in the midst of change that you are going through as an individual, what hasn't changed or what is staying the same or what is not moving, I hope you would maybe come to the same answer that Daniel and his three friends came to. Because I think they were all in this same situation. For them, the change that they were walking through was astronomical. These were four young men with a bunch of other people, obviously, who uh, these few were in their uh, middle teens, 15 to 17 years old. They had been torn from their homeland, ripped away from their families, taken away from their routine, moved from their religion, and been deposited in, deposited in the heart of evil. Everything in their world had changed. And I wonder if one of the things they started to do amongst themselves was to say, well, what hasn't changed? And I believe that one of the answers that they came up with and that you and I should come up with is God had not changed. Their God was still the same. Just because they weren't in Jerusalem, just because they weren't at the temple, just because they weren't at the family didn't mean that God had all of a sudden lost his power or his influence in their life. And so we see that woven through this chapter, this chapter one, is that Daniel had a thoroughly God-centered worldview. All of the change that he experienced, he worked through the grid of a sovereign God who never changed. When I read this chapter a few months ago, somewhere over the water, I was struck by a phrase that is repeated three times. And it's a way that I have divided the chapter. And when I came back and started reading, I found a few others that had divided the chapter according to the same phrase. It's a phrase that's found in verse 2, in verse 9, and in verse 17. And if you underline your Bibles, you might want to underline this phrase. In verse 2, it simply says this, And God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In verse 9, it says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And in verse 17, it says, And as, these, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom. It's that phrase that I want to use to roughly define this text. I hope you understand, too, again, that we're talking about three or four young men amongst a group of others that had been taken to Babylon. 
At that time, Babylon was a specific location, a specific place. Uh, it had a geography. But as we looked at a few uh, weeks ago, Babylon represented more than just a locale. And in fact, Babylon had its origin long before the city that Nebuchadnezzar was head of, and it will be destroyed, one of the last things that God destroys before his kingdom comes in its fullness. Babylon represents everything that is anti-God. Babylon is a culture and a worldview that tries to push out God and raise man up to the top. And so we could say we live in Babylon today. Because in Parksville and in Nanaimo and in Qualicum Beach and in Vancouver and all around the world, there is a determined effort to squeeze God out of the center and to move him to the periphery, if not to say that God is dead. And so this has application to us today as we think about this particular story. The chapter covers a period of three years. We start at the beginning of the three years and that we, we jump ahead to the end of the three years and we see the conclusion of what was going on in the lives of these four individuals. So I want to just start by us considering the first couple verses of this chapter and that one phrase, and God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And really, uh, what I want to say, and I've described it this way, it's what Babylonians, and I've got that in quotation marks, by that I mean what people who live in Babylon today and back then, what they never acknowledge or rarely see is God's sovereign rule. In verse 1, we have history from a human perspective. In verse 1, we have history on a horizontal plane. In verse 1, we are just told what we would learn in any history class, in any university, in any high school, in any middle school for over thousands and thousands of years. We learn that stuff happens. And we learn about one king or queen going against another king or queen. We learn about one land conquering another land. That is what our world is about. It's about the rise and fall of empires. It's going on even today. We see it in Syria. You see it in North Korea. You see it in Russia. You see it in the States. We see it all over the world. We see people rising up and trying to conquer other lands and trying to rule them. That is history on a human plane. But what people very rarely see is what's described in verse 2. And that is history from a theological perspective or history from God's point of view. There we read, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, in this case, it was a specific revelation of God that God had given Israel and Jehoiakim into the king's hand. There were three times when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. One was in 605, one was in 597, and one was in 587. This is describing 605 BC. And it's telling us, and God is telling us, that this is not a closed universe. That the movements of kingdoms is not by accident. That God is on his throne, working out his purposes and fulfilling his plans in this world. And what took place back there in 605 B.C. is still taking place now in 2016 B.C. God is on his throne, moving the kingdoms and the kings and the queens of this world in the direction that he wants them to go. There's a few things that, that, that I think I just, it's helpful to point out. They're, they're adverbs, maybe, to the word sovereignty. The first adverb is simply active. 
you get a picture here of not a God who stands back and, and, and just watches the world unfold. As, that's what deism is, if you, if you um, read theology. Deism is simply a God who created the world and sits back and doesn't do anything about it. But we see here, God is actively engaged in the world that he has created. He is not passive. His reign is not standoffish. He is active in this world. We see it in nature. Nature does its, his bidding. And for some, this might be just astounding to you. For others, it might be uh, something you've thought a lot about. But God controls nature. He sends lightning to strike. He stores up hail to fall on certain lands. He sends rain to relieve drought. He withhold rain to bring drought. God is in control of the animals. He sends locusts to devour fields. He sends whales to save disobedient servants. He shuts the mouths of hungry lions so they don't eat his servants. He can cause a donkey to speak so he saves the life of one of his disobedient prophets. God is active not only in nature, but God is active in the animal kingdom. We also find, though, that God is active in, 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 in that's the minutia of God's activity in our world. So he is not a passive God. And as you read the pages of Scripture, you find this about God's reign and his rule. It is effective, it is felt, and it is real. So all around you, your world might be changing. But know that God is on his throne, guiding and directing those changes to bring about his purposes. We also find about God's sovereignty that it's a faithful sovereignty. And you might say, well, that's a kind of a strange way to describe sovereignty. Well, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we introduced the book of Daniel, we realized that Daniel started in Jeremiah, and in fact it started before that with the disobedience of God's people. And in fact, Isaiah says this, he says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that your fathers have stored up until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, Jer or Isaiah is saying what Moses said in Deuteronomy, is saying what Jeremiah said, is that the act of God giving the people into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar was a demonstration of his faithful rule in that he had spoken his word, his people had disobeyed his word, and he said, if you disobey me, this will be the consequences. It's a bit of chastisement. But it's a reminder to you and I that God, God's word is just not puff and smoke. We had a saying in our house when we were raising our kids, and Kath and I tried to, tried to stick by it. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't make idle threats. Don't say stupid things. Don't, don't say to your kids, well, if you don't do this, you're going to vacuum the whole house, and they're two years old. They're never going to vacuum the house. When we think about God, God says what he means, and he means what he says. And we see this worked out in his faithful sovereignty. The flip side of that should be good news to you and I who are trusting in the provinces of God, who are believing that he says that his son is going to come back one day, and we are waiting for that, and we're hoping for that. How do we know that's going to take place? Because God is faithful to his word. And so we see a faithful sovereignty here. We also see here something which is a little bit astounding to me. He says there, uh, he gave King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. 
You say, well, wh why is that strange? Well, I think here we have another um, uh, uh, adjective describing the sovereignty of God, and that's humble. In those days, when one kingdom defeated another kingdom, one of the things they did was take all the objects of worship in their temples. And it was a sign that they had defeated not only the people, but they had defeated, defeated the gods of that particular place. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he sacked the temple and he took God's vessels, which God had given to Moses to make precisely so that the people could worship him, what Nebuchadnezzar did was he took those vessels, and there must have been a celebration all the way back to Babylon as they, uh, as they um, held forth all these objects that they had plundered, and this was their way of saying, we've won, and God has lost. Do you know how hard it must be for God to sit back and be mocked by kings of this world as though he's powerless and impotent to act? And yet God watched the vessels of his temple be taken and deposited in the vessel in the temple of a pagan king. We see here something of the incredible humility of God as God knows what his plan is. We see it in Christ, beautifully worked out in Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, where God had every right to come and just, just destroy us, humankind. But it says that Christ humbled himself. He came to earth. He took on flesh, the flesh of men and women, human flesh. And he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself even to the point of death. Do you ever consider the incredible humility that is behind the sovereignty of God in our salvation and in the sacking of his temple? And so we see, worked out in this first couple verses, this incredible view of, of the sovereignty of God and a way of looking at history in the world and, and, and three um, uh, adverbs that describe his sovereignty as active, as faithful, and as humble. And then we come to the next set of verses, which is Daniel 1, 3 to 16. And right in the middle of that is verse 9, which we'll come back to in a moment where it talks about God giving Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. But in verses 3 to 7, we find this description of what, we, what I might call, and I'll try and say this word, get it out, the Babylonization of the captives. You might be familiar, more familiar with the term brainwashing. This was what Nebuchadnezzar and his leaders now set out to do to all the captives that came from Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar has one goal, and his program has one intention in mind, and that is to blot out from the minds of the captives any remembrance of their God, their religion, their homeland, their family, and replace it with every remembrance of him and his kingdom and his gods and his power. He wanted to erase everything that they knew and replace it with something completely new. I wish we understood that this is what is taking place in the world in which we live today. This is not just a Babylonian phenomena. This is a world in which we live phenomena. And there is intentional determination to try and erase God from our schools and from our universities, and from our classes, and from our workplaces, where we can no longer practice or talk or think about our faith in public. And there is an intentional determination to erase 
biblical faith from the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls today. I read a couple commentators, and I will repeat the way that they summarize these verses, just so you have the words. I think they're helpful. One commentator says there's four ways in which the brainwashing takes place. One is isolation. Take them from Jerusalem, deposit them in Babylon. The second is indoctrination. Fill their minds with, with our literature, our language, our truth. And so he says, you are now to train them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That meant their math, their astrology, their magic arts, their, their history, their language, their myths, their culture. Everything about Babylonian culture, myth, magic was driven into the minds of the captives. Indoctrination. The third was compromise, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But we see that when they were supposed to eat the food that was set before the king and drink the king's wine. And the last was confusion. You say, well, where's confusion? Well, that's with their name change. And I hope you realize that this was an intentional act of the king to change the way these young men thought. You see, in Jewish homes, names mattered. They didn't just kind of put names in a hat or pick names that sounded good or, you know, that reminded them of flowers or forests or animals. They thought about names that had a word of God in them or a name of God in them, Jehovah or Elohim. And so Daniel's name, for instance, meant God is my judge. Mishael's name meant who is like God. Hananiah's name meant Jehovah is gracious. Azariah's name means Jehovah is my helper. So every time they called their son or their daughter, every time their son or daughter called to one of their friends, there was an subtle acknowledgement of a attribute or characteristic of God. And so when they come into Babylon, the king says, get rid of their names and give them new names. And with the new names came a new identity and a new way of thinking about religion and about God. So this was a total program of brainwashing. And so the one says isolation, indoctrination, compromise, confusion. Does this sound familiar, loved ones? Do you feel like this is taking place in your homes? Do you feel like this is taking place sometimes where you work or in the school that you attend or where your children go? Do you sometimes feel that Babylon is trying to erase everything that should matter to you and replace it with everything that is opposed to God? See, then we come to another description of this, which I also find helpful. It says they were getting a new culture, a new luxury, which is welcome to the world of the elite, the, the, the good food and the good wine, and a new identity. You are somebody different. I think there's few phrases that I'm going to hate more than this phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Because it describes sort of what is taking place here. It describes the, the tension that our young adults face as they leave our homes and head off to universities in foreign towns. It describes even sometimes what our own kids face when they leave our school, our homes and go to their schools. They're placing, facing a place where there is a new culture, where there is a new luxury, where there, there is a new identity, and it is full of all kinds of enticements to, to depart from what you know to be right and embrace what you know to be wrong. They reveal the temptations that are lurking just behind the scenes. Now, we will see that God can preserve us and does preserve us, and we thank God for that. But we see the intention of Babylon 
is not for our good. It's for our harm. And the annihilation of God from every sphere of our lives is what the evil one is about in our day. So we come to verse 8. I think it's one of the most critical books in all of Daniel, or the critical verses in all of Daniel. And it seems to just come from nowhere. They're, they're, you know, they're learning the language, and they've embraced that. Uh, they've got new names, and they've embraced that. They've got new teachers, and they've embraced that. But all of a sudden, it says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Strange to me. I have thought, and I wrote in my notes as, as, as Chris was reading, this comes out of nowhere. Where does this come from, this determination to resolve not to eat the king's food and the king's wine? I think for me, the best explanation, the one that satisfies me is simply, Daniel had to draw the line somewhere. He just had to draw the line. You had to draw a line in the sand and say, I can do this. I can learn your literature. I can learn your language. I can learn your magic. I can learn your astrology. I can learn the languages that you want me to learn, but I will not eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. Where does that come from? I, I think it's, it starts in verse 7 and 8. There's a word that's used three times in verse 7 and 8. And it's hard to pick it out in, in English translations, but, but uh, if you're following in the NSV, it, it says there in verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. That's the word, gave them names. And then you come to uh, verse, um, uh, or, or to the next one, it says, and he gave Daniel the name Belshazzar. And then in verse 9, it's, and Daniel resolved. That's the word there, same word. It's a word that literally translated means set. And so it seems like there's a battle taking place between wills. The chief commander set new names upon them. He set a new name on Daniel. And so Daniel says, okay, I'm going to set my foot here and I'm not going to move. It's like Daniel is reacting to all the things that he's being made to do. And he says, okay, fine. This is where I draw the line. Now, some people think that the issue here is dietary. I'm not convinced of that. They, they say, well, you know, Jewish law prohibited eating of certain meats. Well, it did, but Jewish law said nothing about drinking wine. So I think, well, that doesn't seem to fit. Some people say well, it has to do with, um, with religion. The meat might have been offered to idols. Well, probably the vegetables were offered to idols too. So they're still eating stuff that's been offered to idols. Some might say, well, it's symbolic. By eating the king's food and drinking the king's mind, wine, what you're doing is showing dependence upon the king. And you're saying, I depend upon the king for my daily bread. I don't buy that one, though, as well. Um, I think the one that I buy, and I know you might argue with me, but I think it's just purely defensive. And that's, I think, a principle that we all need to have in our lives. What I draw the line on might be not what you draw the line on. What you might say with your kids is enough. We're not going to go any farther. Somebody else might not say that same thing, but might have something else. But there's something that happened in Daniel's head that all of a sudden, as he and his buddies were talking and praying, they knew that this is where they had to draw the line. And they knew for them that to step over this line would mean for them that they had betrayed their God. I believe that the Spirit of God can show you and will show you that, whether it's in school, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in a new relationship. I believe that God can show you that line. 
what I think is hugely helpful here is the manner in which Daniel and these four guys resisted. I sometimes am saddened that Christians are so reactive. I'm sometimes saddened that we are so bombastic. And there is something that we can learn, I think, from Daniel here. I, I don't want to say it's even a principle. I just think it's a, it's a way of living in Babylon that we can maybe all learn a little bit from. I like the fact that he was, by all intents and purposes, it seems that initially he was private and polite. So you get the impression that Daniel didn't really want to make a scene. So he first went to the chief of the eunuchs. That's the guy he should have gone to. And he first went to him, and I think he probably pulled him aside and he said, listen, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot, and we're willing to continue to serve you and prepare for the king. But, you know, this thing that you have said about us eating the king's food and drinking the king, we cannot do that. It's fascinating to me. It says that um, God gave Daniel and his three friends favor in the eyes of the chief commander. So you ought to think, well, things are going to go good for him. But actually what happens is he says, well, I can't do anything for you. Because this is such an important issue that I could lose my life over changing the king's diet for you. So he said, no. So some of us, they think, well, God, you've let me down. I tried once, so I guess that was a pretty stupid thing to decide I'm going to do my own thing now. But notice what Daniel does. And this is where you begin to see the incredible wisdom that God was already filling these young men with. Most of us would go to the next higher person on the totem pole. That's what we say, well, give me your boss. Well, give me the manager. Well, I want the president of the company. Daniel says, well, okay, I'll go to the lower guy on the totem pole. And he went to the guard. And he said to the guard, listen, please, notice the word, please, please, will you consider this? And notice his reasonableness. I think it's helpful that, 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 that Daniel was like this. But here he's putting his faith into action. I think he's realizing, God, you, you, you've got me here for a reason, but I don't know what's going on here. And God, you've put me under this guy for a reason. I don't know why, but okay, God, we're going to test this out. So he gave, he says, I need 10 days. Not a lot of time from a human perspective, but enough time to test his faith out. And I love his request. It had a way out. I don't know what Daniel would have done if it had gone other way. He says, okay, try us for 10 days. Just 10 days. That's all I ask. 10 days of vegetables and water. And at the end of the 10 days, test us. See the beauty in that? He gave this guy a way out and said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm putting my neck out on the line for you, but I can give you 10 days. And he's also putting God on the line. And he's giving God an opportunity. He's testing his faithfulness to God. And at the end of the 10 days, look at the result. It says that they looked healthier than all the others. I hope you hear me today. I'm not advocating that this is any biblical God-given diet that we ought to follow. I don't believe that. Uh, there might be some wisdom in eating vegetables and drinking water and cutting out some of the wine and the, the, the meat that we eat. That's not the point of Daniel at all. The point of Daniel is here is a test that is testing God's sovereignty and God's power. And you see where God's sovereignty is at work here, loved ones? In nutrition. God is even able to make the body healthy with his power. And at the end of 10 days, these four youths were healthier than all the others 
who had eaten the king's meat and the king's wine. This tells me something of God's silent rule. Just because we can't see God at work doesn't mean that God isn't at work in our lives doing what he needs to do. And this is where faithfulness begins, loved ones. I, I think of this from time to time. I think the place that you start faithfulness is when you first start a relationship. That's where you set the boundaries. We'll go this far or no farther. A new job. I can do this, but I can't do that. Um, uh, a new school. I, I can, I'll go here and do that, but I, I can't do that. And I hope you understand, and I'm glad there's a lot of younger people here. Faithfulness begins in the small things. And when you succeed in the small things, when you are thrown in a lion's den situation, you have tested the faithfulness of God, and you know that he is true. Faithfulness begins in the little things and works its way into the bigger things of our life. Sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith to plant its feet when it has to meet more severe threats. The third section in here is from verse 17 to 20. What most people should more often contemplate or think about, and it's God's subversive rule. We've got God's sovereign rule. We've got God's silent rule. And here we've got God's subversive rule. It's amazing here again in the sovereignty of God. You see what it says there, loved ones? It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. See, there's another work of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over our minds. God is able to, 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 to help our minds understand and retain and grasp knowledge so that we learn at a different pace and we learn at a different depth. Because this is, after all, his world. Didn't he make it? He's made the stars, the sun, the moon, the animals, the earth, everything in it, everything on it, everything under it, everything above it. He's made it. By his wisdom, he has put it all together. Doesn't it make sense that he is able to give us knowledge and wisdom to apply that knowledge to our lives? It's a remarkable statement. So we've jumped ahead three years now at the end of this trial. I don't think it's three little, literal years. It could be started in December of year one and went through 12 months of year two and ended in March of year three. Um, I don't think we need to get knotted up over whether it's exactly 36 months. But at the end of three years, they're brought before the king and tested. And notice what it says, that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were 10 times better than all the, the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. We'll see next week. It shows the hollowness of the magic arts. And it shows the depth and the vastness of God's knowledge and wisdom. But here they are far and away above. Ten times better just says they were just miles ahead of all the other diviners and enchanters. You see, you see a strange thing that's happened here, loved ones? In verse 3 and 4, we're introduced to four captives, four men who were the spoils of war, and it would have been really in, easy to conclude that God had lost, that their God was dead, that he hadn't been able to save them. But here at the end of the story, it says, and they stood before the king. That's amazing to me that God took four young men from 
Jerusalem, and in three years they were in the court of the king, advising and serving him. That in verse 3 we find some of the vessels of God's temple in a pagan temple, but we find the men of God in the court of one of the most powerful kings that has ever lived in the history of this world. What were the chances that God's people would serve and influence some of the most powerful people who ever lived? But then whose world is this? I want you to get this, loved ones. There are few things that will give you greater calm and peace and hope than an understanding and a grasp of the sovereign reign of God. And here these three men were in the king's court. And the last thing, this will take a minute. What should fill God's people with hope? It's God's eternal room. Look at verse 21. It's a fascinating verse. You might think it's a throwaway verse. I think it's a huge verse. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What this is doing, this is making a statement about the eternal reign of God versus the temporal reign of man. And it's also making a theological statement because the first year of Cyrus was 538. And if you remember, Cyrus, God put it in his head to say, all the captives in Babylon, I want you to go back and rebuild the walls and the temple. It's a theological statement that God is still in control. It's a historical statement that God's people outlast the people of Babylon. Four incredible kings had come and gone, and yet Daniel was still serving God. It's just a reminder that God's reign is an eternal reign. And so in this chapter, loved ones, you get a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. Go home and wrestle with it. A God who is in control over minds and nutrition and decisions and the heart and the rise and fall of world leaders. A sovereignty that is active and faithful and humble. And you get a small glimpse in the world's attempt to indoctrinate and brainwash us. But yet what God can do with men and women, boys and girls, who determine to be faithful to God above all else. May God help us to be faithful in his kingdom as we submit to a sovereign God who reigns over every aspect of our world and of our lives.